Today, as we start our Who's Your One series, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 22. When we consider different people groups, or um, when we, we, we tend to associate characteristics with different groups of people, whether they're fair or not. The term car salesman is rightly or unrightly tends to be associated with maybe some form of shadiness. It's kind of a joke culturally. When we think about teachers, we think about devoted public servants, or maybe you don't. Maybe you think about that mean third grade teacher who used to get on you all the time. When we, the point that when we think about different groups of people, we make associations in our mind. And when we consider the term Christian or church, Assumptions are made as well, not only amongst us, but in our community. The first followers of Jesus, they didn't call themselves Christians. It was a derogatory term that was used by unbelievers. You could think of a term like Bible thumper today. That's where the term Christian came about. It was used in, in a sense to, to mock those who follow Jesus. But in Acts 11:26, that changed. And we see that the first Christians were known as disciples, but took on this term. In Acts 11:26, it says, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The word Christian is used three times in the entire Bible, but the word disciple is used 281 times. Disciple is a far deeper and more accurate term describing what it means to follow Jesus. It's the reason that it's one of our identities as a church. We're a family of missionary disciples. The term disciples provides us a compelling description of what it means to follow Jesus. By the same token, as we come to understand the concept of being a disciple, we also learn that it exposes the fact that many who claim to be Christians are not actually disciples of Jesus. This is a crucial reality for every follower of Jesus to come to terms with as a missionary in Joplin and in the United States as a whole. So as we look at our text today, I want to see what it contrasts, what it teaches us about the difference between a disciple and what our culture refers to as Christians. So we've read Matthew 14, 18 through 22, and I want to share a little historical background about what has just taken place here. First of all, all Hebrew boys went to Torah school starting at age five. Now by age 10, the young boys knew the Torah, but the best student, the Torah being the first five books of the Bible, and the best students went on to study the remainder of the Old Testament. The rest returned home to join the family business. At about age 17, if you wanted to make a career out of religious studies, your next step was to find a rabbi you admired and to become one of his disciples. When you found one, you would go and you would sit at his feet. This was your request to learn, and the rabbi would examine you with questions and put you through a series of tests to see whether or not you were worthy to be his disciple. The rabbis tended to, they would choose the smartest, most talented young boys to be their disciples. One of the reasons the rabbis were so picky is because this wasn't just about can this person learn all the knowledge that I have. That was a big component of it, hence the, they would choose the smartest. But it was literally a could this person be who I am? Not just will they know what I know, but will they do, are they capable of doing what I do? 
And this was, for, for a rabbi, one called to uphold religious principles and to walk in such a public light. Like, this was a significant question. Is this person capable of this? And for several years, these young disciples would follow their rabbis, and they would int- imitate them in every way. The goal of a disciple was to be like their rabbi, to do what their rabbi did. And so as we consider what's taken place in this text today, I want to share with you five truths that help us, that, of, of five truths that we gain from Jesus' call of the first disciples. Number one, we see in our text today that Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chose the willing He chose those who would follow him. It says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. As Jesus begins his ministry, he chooses Peter and Andrew, who are fishermen. I want to just consider the implications of that for a moment. The fact that they were fishermen means they weren't the best of the best. Like, they weren't chosen. Like, that that didn't happen. They were the group that was sent back to go learn the family business. They were sent out to to join this because they were the B team. That's how they were viewed. In in terms of, of religious life, this was the B team. So I want to consider deeply the implications of this. When Jesus set out to build his kingdom movement, he chose junior varsity, the ones nobody would have picked. John MacArthur points out, God skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens, and the powerful were in Rome. He skipped over the great thinker, Julius Caesar. He skipped past Socrates. He chose men so ordinary it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts. That's just not where Jesus went. You see, his work in the world wouldn't come from the abilities of those whom he called, but in his abilities through them that he would call. This is why the Lord continually and all throughout Scripture and continually today calls humble vessels. Because a humble posture is required to follow after him. It's only through death to self that we find life in Jesus. People with a lot of talent and ability would only get in the way because they would never learn to lean on his power. Jesus taught that his power in the weakest vessel was infinitely greater than the greatest talent of the world without him. These men were willing to leave behind everything to follow Jesus. And make no mistake, like they had everything to lose. We tend to, often we think about them merely as poor fishermen. But the truth is, Scripture gives us reason to believe that they weren't just poor fishermen, that this was a lucrative family business. Although fishing was a blue-collar job, it didn't necessarily mean that fishermen were poor. In fact, Mark 1.20 tells us that Zebedee's business had other employees working for him, that there were paid servants on the boat. So this was, a, this was most likely a pretty doing-okay operation. I mean, in the same way that owning a successful roofing company doesn't mean you're poor, so these guys had a seem to have had a safe occupation. However, even though the brothers walked away from a stable life, a noble trade, and a sense of security, if we really consider that historical background, 
It's not a huge surprise that they responded the way they did to the call of Jesus. Nor is it a a surprise that Zebedee didn't resist as a father. Because when when we consider the weight of what just happened, we shouldn't be shocked at all that they would leave. I want to start by saying, as, we, as I back that up, that Andrew and Peter had already met Jesus. Like, they knew who he was. We see this encounter in John 1, 35-42. It says, The next day again, Jesus was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them and said, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus, and his name was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So like when Jesus shows up to the boat, they had all like they knew, they had declared rightly who he was. This is the rabbi, this is the Messiah. The rabbi comes and he asks these nobodies to be his students, to be his disciples. Okay, like this is the equivalent to like you're a you're ju- you're junior varsity shortstop on your high school team, and the New York Yankees pull up and say, "Hey, leave everything. You come with us." Like you leave everything. Okay, you leave your bald, tired Nissan Altima in the parking lot, and you get on the boat. Like this is the Yankees. I don't deserve to be in this conversation. The rabbi came to them. The rabbi who they acknowledged was more than a rabbi came to them and said, "Follow me." Of course, they left everything behind. Friends, God's call to you is no less glorious. Andrew and John left everything to get up and go because the honor and privilege of discipleship was extraordinary. More than anything else the world had to offer, more than any career could offer them. It was incomprehensible. It demonstrated grace beyond measure, and the same is true for you, Christian. He wants to use you in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. I want to challenge you this morning and throughout this month to stop making excuses about all of your shortcomings. God doesn't need your ability. He requires only your availability. God isn't called the equipped. He calls the called. He equips the called. Throughout this month, I want you to wrestle with the questions, am I willing to follow Jesus wherever he would call me? Am I willing to go? Am I more excited about what God is doing, what he intends to do through me, than I am fill in the blank about whatever else is going on in your fishing business? Second implication of this passage is he chose us, not we him. Follow me, he told them. The normal process of discipleship was that if you were among the best of your class, You applied to a rabbi, and then we'd see if he judged you worthy. If he was impressed by your competence, maybe he accepts you. Now, the perk of that was a lot of pride came with that. If you were selected in this way, you could have a a great great deal of confidence in your ability. But Jesus didn't do this because it's not the way of the kingdom. These men didn't even come to sit at his feet. He came seeking them when they weren't even looking for him. 
this week I was reading uh, really some interesting stuff about the um, relationship between J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. One of the things that bonded them together initially as friends, when C.S. Lewis was far from a Christian, was a love of mythology. It was the, one of the primary similarities that drew them together and that they spent much time discussing late into the night. But it also served as one of Lewis's major stumbling blocks to embracing Christianity. As a young man, he had decided that faith was simply one mythology amongst many, and just as fabricated as all the rest. He once said, all religions, that is, all mythologies, to give them their proper name, are merely man's own invention. Christ as much as Loki. C.S. Lewis said this as a young professor. Yet, as much as Lewis wished to hold on to this position, he couldn't shake the sense that it felt like a stiff, confining set of clothes. That he had stubbornly been keeping something at bay that he wasn't entirely sure he didn't want to embrace fully. Despite his best defenses, he fell to prodding within. And he believed it was God himself who he described as actively hunting him like a deer. Once he said, I never had the experience of looking for God. It was always the other way around. And this is true for all disciples of Jesus. Friend, make no mistake, if you're a disciple of Jesus, it has nothing to do with your ability or your greatness. It's because he chose you that he might be glorified through his work in you. John 15, 16 says this when in, in John 15, 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed, appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus says, like, you, you didn't choose me. I chose you that you may go and bear fruit. And then he assures, like, in your process of bearing fruit, and, that, and the fruit that would abide, essentially he's saying, I've chose you to be a disciple who makes disciples. And in the midst of that, like, you don't do that by your own power. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Not, not only he chose us, but the third implication of this passage is that our primary call is to be with him. He primarily chose us to be with him. Follow me, he told them. He didn't tell them where they were going or what assignment he had for them. The primary call was not to do something. It was initially just to become like him, to go with him, to become like him. You have to know him. To know him, you have to know his word. One of the primary roles of the church is to aid you in this, knowing the word of God. There are many things, even, even as a pastor, like there are some things about my job that have, come that have come up culturally throughout the decades due to needs and community. And I get that and I accept that. But one of the things that isn't that is the call to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Like that's what our leadership is primarily tasked with, to pray, preach, and equip. And it's for that reason that we offer all of the avenues for that. And that we're seeking to grow in the avenues by which we, we do that. <coughs> if, you, if you come to a place where you feel you're not growing or disconnected, or if you're coming across people who communicate that to you, one of the things we have to do is primarily see, like, are we engaging in the opportunities that Christ has provided through his church to, to be with him and to be growing in our knowledge of him? Because everything we do is meant for that purpose. 
We gather here weekly so that we might hear the word proclaimed and that we might exercise setting aside all else and acknowledging our call to follow him above everything. One of the, recently I saw a quote and it, I couldn't help but, but, but revel in it. Like what if we were a group of people who church was, our church gathering was the reason we missed everything else? Like also often in our culture, it's like the gathering is kind of this secondary thing. If I don't have anything going on, if I'm not tired, then this could work. But what if it was vice versa? What if the gathering was the reason we didn't always get to do other things because we held it in that high of regard as a gift given from God to be with his people and to turn our affections to him? Our family groups are are a place that are intended for this purpose, to come together, to be his people. We're studying scripture together here, like I hear over and over again. Man, I just don't know how to read the Bible. I really struggle with my reading plan, and so it's okay. We'll do that here with you. Like, you can come and sit with other people, and we'll study that together. You can't, like, I can't, I can't be stuck in the fact that I'm really struggling to read the Bible, but then not take advantage of opportunities to come and have the Bible taught to me. Whether that's in our Bible study or our men's and women's group, these things are important because they're a vessels through which we grow in our understanding of who God is, that we get to grow in our ability to be with him. If we're serious about being his disciples and not just being Christians, we take advantage of the gifts that he's given us that many all over the world desire and would give anything to have. Get his word inside of you until it dominates all of your thinking and all of your behavior. Like you want to know how you grow and your ability to, to know scripture and to communicate gospel truths. It's by being saturated in his word instead of everything else and holding opportunities to grow in such in high regard. And sometimes... As a disciple, that's something we have to fight for. Like, it's not easy to be healthy. That's why, like, it's incredibly hard. It means going and exercising on days that I really don't want to. That means prioritizing nutrition even when I'd prefer something else and something else might make me happier sometimes. But we do it anyway because health is important. So I'm not saying, like, that every aspect of being a disciple of following jesus of even being a part of the church is always going to be something like it's not about something you want when we try to turn everything that we do as a church into just something people want that's when consumerism takes roots like no this is about discipleship this is a group of people we're fighting together to be more like jesus number four to lead to follow him we have to leave everything else behind and that's part of that Jesus makes that call, follow me. And this passage tells us immediately they left the boat and they left their father and they followed him. You've got to stop and wonder for a minute, like why did they make such a point to mention these two things? It's because these two things are usually the most significant things in our lives. They left their boat, they left their father. The boat is symbolic of like they left their career they left their money they left their sense of security they had no idea how they would be provided for once they walked away from the boat like jesus didn't lay out that plan he didn't sit down with them and say here's the benefits package here's here's your annual salary increase no it was just follow me they had no idea 
They, gave, they, they walked away from their identity. Maybe they weren't much, but they were fishermen. They could hold their head high. They had a trade. They knew how to do it well. That, it was their identity. Like They were fishermen. That's what they had. Jesus calls them to walk away from that. This is the very, everything they knew about how they could take care of themselves, Jesus calls them to walk away from. And he calls them to walk away from their father. He's symbolic of our most significant relationships. You see, like, our calling isn't about where we feel the most comfortable. They were comfortable in their family and amongst their dad and those whom they grew up around, but Jesus calls them out of comfort and into something else, to abide in him. To follow Jesus, he has to take precedence over both our careers, our, our security, and our most meaningful relationships. Most of us won't literally lose our father and mother over Jesus, but you could. Some might. For some, God may call, be calling, like God may come, we may come to a place where God calls us to change careers. Maybe God will tell you to transfer, to be a part of a church plant. Maybe God will call you to a place where you go because he intends to rescue people in that place. I have to ask the question, like, why do we look for a church in the place where we have a job opportunity instead of looking for a job opportunity in the place where God's calling us to be a part of the church? Like, I think we get that switch sometimes. Maybe he calls you to work at or don't work at a place in order that the good news might go where he sends you. In any event, following Jesus as a disciple almost always includes a call to leave something behind. This is true of repentance. This is true of obedience. This is just true of following Jesus in general. It almost always means setting something down to respond to the call of him on your life. Maybe he calls you to take the good news to Nineveh. For many of you, though, it probably won't be that dramatic. But every disciple must face moments where you have to decide what or whom takes precedence in your life. And for many, maybe most, the cost is just too high. That's the difference between discipleship and cultural Christianity. It's the reason that we value membership so much. Because we want to, like that document reflects the truth that the cost is high. You acknowledge that and you're asking a group of people to hold you accountable and faithfully being a disciple in the midst of a high cost. And part of that cost, my last point, he commands us to, to spiritually reproduce. He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Following Jesus means you subject everything in your life to his lordship. You forsake all that he has forbidden, and you pursue all that he has prescribed. Just like he was a fisher of men, his followers would become fishers of men. This is an essential part of being a disciple. It's not something that only a few of us do. It's something that each of us do. There is no call to be a non-reproducing Christian. How do you prove you're a disciple? The Bible tells us by bearing fruit. And the Bible warns us, like, if we come to a place where we're not bearing fruit, we have a legitimate reason to question how, whether or not I'm currently living as a disciple. And that doesn't mean there won't be those seasons, but in seasons where that's not part of who I am, like I go to the Father and I need to seek out why is that. 
John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Jesus tells his disciples how to bear fruit through the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In Greek, the words go, baptize, and teach are all participles whose force comes from the controlling verb make disciples, which means that everything we do grows out of the call to make disciples. Jesus summarized his ministry in Luke 19 by saying, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. If we're his disciples, that should summarize our lives too. We're here to seek and save the lost. And his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, which is a little book within, it's probably like, in my mind, it's probably one of the greatest books ever written on evangelism. It is a classic in Christian literature. Robert Coleman said, When will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism, nor can occasional prayer meetings or training classes for Christian workers to do this job. Individual women and men are God's method. God's plan for discipleship is not something, but someone. As we close this morning, I just want to encourage you and challenge you. You are God's chosen method for rescuing the lost. As Christ came, that you might be rescued. So we step out. So we move in that the good news may continue to go forth through us as a reflection of the gospel by which we have been saved. My prayer for Rooted in 2020 is that we would become this. That we would, we would be seen, that we would know, that we would embrace our status as God's chosen method. And I'm going to be challenging you. Like, what if we committed to that? What if we weren't afraid? That, that we understood that like making disciples is simply teaching somebody about Jesus as we seek to follow Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has promised to help you. He promised. Like, he promised to help you in this. If you live out faithfully in this, you call on the Father, he helps you in this. So over the month of March, I'm going to be asking you at the end of, of each, each sermon, what if you identified one? What if this month you identified one person? What if you asked God to help you identify one person that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he might allow you to lead to faith in Jesus this year. Could you imagine what it would look like if every member of Rooted Church did this? I'm not even saying if it happened for everybody, but if we all faithfully stepped out and committed to just taking it forward and, and, and like Jonah, acknowledging salvation belongs to the Lord, but if we stepped out in obedience to share the good news with one person we knew, I just I want to encourage you to just pray this prayer. God, give me one person I could lead to Jesus. For the month of March, I just want to challenge you three things, three practical steps. They're real quick. Number one, find time to be with the Lord and ask this question. Find time to sit 
put all else aside and be with the Father and ask him this. Then write down the name of the person. Share it with your family group. Begin to pray for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with this person. I actually, I'm going to have it at our resource table. I have a little card that help, that provides a prayer guide and just a space to actually write this person's name down on paper. As a, just a reminder, you can use this as a Bible bookmark, maybe through your, uh, it's got a reading plan that kind of culminates with the sermon. What would it, what would it, what would it look like to just name that person and to invite the Holy Spirit to come and lead us in that? Number two, I'm just going to give a practical low-hanging fruit suggestion that I would encourage you to. Easter is just a little over a month away. When we first planted Rooted, I had a real hard time. I kind of had this idea, like, man, like maybe we never own a building. There was a time where I was really influenced by the house church movement, and those things were all well and good, but I came to embrace that in Joplin, Missouri, in the buckle of the Bible Belt, the front door on Sunday morning is still the primary door through which even lost people are brought into the church. I mean, for many in our city, even those who don't know Jesus probably think they know Jesus and are more likely to come in on Sunday than they are to a living room full of people we don't they don't know. Like, there's still probably a slightly higher percentage of that. So there's still just there's just value in inviting somebody to come and, and to come with you to the church. Statistics say that most people who are invited by a friend will come. Easter is just a natural day for that because a lot of folks who think they're Christians but maybe aren't disciples, they probably only go to church on Easter and don't necessarily have a place to go. So I just I would encourage you, this one person, maybe your first step is just inviting them to join you and your family at our Easter gathering and take them to lunch afterwards. Number three, maybe you know the person. Maybe that's not the best avenue for them. Maybe the front door for them would be a family group. Invite them to your family group. Our family groups are intentionally, like there's a reason we don't do a video and a 10-week Bible study in our family groups because that's a really weird thing for a non-Christian to walk into on week three. Oh, I thought you invited me over for lasagna. I didn't know we were doing this whole thing. Okay, so like we separated that in part for that purpose. So take advantage of that. Evangelism doesn't have to be something we do alone, but in the company of people. What what would it look like to invite somebody in and for them to see Jesus and our love for one another? I know you're busy. I know life might feel overwhelming right now, and you might have a hundred excuses to keep you from living out the mission of God. You might even feel kind of irritated thinking about these things. Like, why is he why is he talking about this? Does he not know all that I have? Like you might even feel some of that rising up in you as we talk about these things. But I want to remind you, you're not alone in that. God almost always calls people who are busy doing something else. Jesus called the apostles as they were calling, as they were casting nets into the sea. Charles Spurgeon once said, they were busy in a lawful occupation when he called them to be ministers. Our Lord does not call idlers, but fishers. Saul was looking for his father's donkeys. David was keeping his father's sheep. The shepherds were guarding their flocks. Amos was farming. Matthew was working at the tax collector's table. Moses was tending his father-in-law's flock. Gideon was threshing wheat. It goes on and on and on. God pretty much always calls us when we're in the midst, when we got a lot else going on. I don't, you have to ask him about that. But that seems to be his pattern. So you're not alone in feeling like I don't need one more thing. This is the thing. 
that all the other things God has brought into your life are meant to point to this. Your job, your career, all those things are reflective of your missionary call that God's put you in those places for this purpose. I'll leave you this morning with quoting the, the same scripture we read earlier, John 15, 1. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed the, you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. God, thank you for this day, this opportunity to be here together as a gospel family. Lord, you promise <coughs> anything we ask in the name of Jesus that you're faithful to give those things. And so, God, I ask you that all that we've spoke of today would be true in us. Holy Spirit, would you individually help us to see clearly one person that we could share the love of Jesus with? One person that we could take the first step and just invite them to, uh, to the service where we acknowledge the empty tomb. Holy Spirit, would you reveal to us that one person and would you provide us an opportunity to share the good news of what you've done uh, in our lives to them in whatever way you see fit and you lead us to do. God, I pray, I ask you that all the things that you've given us, all of our identities, that they would just take a step back to our identity as sons and daughters to our call to bear fruit. God, would we desire deeply to bear fruit? Not that we might earn righteousness, but because you've given us righteousness. God, press this desire deep down into our hearts that it may it might nag at us, that we might not escape from it, but that we might lean into you. Like you we, we can't do this on our own. But you've that's why you promised to help us. Lord, help us to, to know that to be true and to trust you in that. God, like, would we not be like Jonah and be fearful that you don't have our good, but, but would we lean into you? Would we trust you? Would we ask for your help? And would we go where you've called us to go? Lord, give us clarity on where you've called us to go. God, I know that you have not begun this work of planting a church just for the purpose of us all to, to be in a place where we like other people. Lord, we I know like you, you intend for the good news to go forth and for the lost to be saved. Lord, empower us this year and this month to lean into that. Begin to grow us in that. Stretch us in that. Lord, draw many to yourself. We know, Lord, there are many in this city who are yours and they just don't know it yet. Lord, would you, uh, would you be so gracious as to use humble vessels like us to present that good news to them? I love you. I ask all of these things in the good name of Jesus. Amen.